Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's program, we've got the CEO of a very impressive Australian company whose share price has really rocketed in recent years. The name of the company is Dicker Data and the founder and CEO is David Dicker. He's on the program. Very interesting guy, very interesting business. And then we have Paul Rickard and myself looking at the challenges of investing overseas when the Aussie dollar is really low. His, I must admit my own personal experience, I once made a brilliant overseas investment um, strategy, which worked out really well. The, the unit price on this uh, ETF rocketed, but at the same time, the Aussie dollar went up as well and it undermined the great returns I'd got from pretty good analysis. So watching the Australian dollar and how you play it, clearly I'm talking about hedging. That's something that Paul Ricker and I look at very closely. And then we talk to Cameron Kusher of PropTrack. He's an economist there. And he says that the rental crisis going on right now uh, is quite serious. And I ask him whether that actually puts a floor under the fall in house prices. And will that encourage lots of people to think about um, actually coming property investors with rental prices going up. So if you want to know more about whether it's the right time to become a property investor, make sure you listen to that interview. So let's kick off now with David Dicker of Dicker Data. I'm catching up with the CEO of Dicker Data, David Dicker. And uh, this is a company that's performed very well. A lot of people probably don't know exactly what they do, but let's just find out what they do. How come they've done so well? What's the, the future looking like? Dave, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Just for those people who don't know about the company, in a nutshell, what do you do? Well, we're an IT distributor, basically. So computers, comms, software, hardware, basically, everything IT. Who, who have been and who are your rivals in the market? Well, our two biggest competitors are Ingram Micro and Cynix, which are both foreign multinationals. Yeah. Who are your customers? <coughs> well, they're pretty much anyone in the IT business. Yeah. So you know, resellers yeah. and those kind of guys. And we deal with other you know, I mean, and they range in size from small guys to big guys. Yeah, but you're you're a B to B operation, aren't you? Yeah, basically, we don't we don't deal with the end user. Hmm. We All used right. to, but a long time ago. Okay. Now, so I'll go on screen the share price, which runs from about two thousand and ten or so, um, and you know, given the the actual dollar numbers are different. It, it looks like a Microsoft chart or a, or a Tesla chart. It's big growth. You've got big growth. How come? What, you, what, are, what have you done? What's your competitive advantage that explains that, that chart? Well, it probably, if in a single thing, it comes down to having better people hmm. because we all have access to the same... Um, vendors and the same equipment in the broad. I mean, obviously there's small detail differences, but all our competitors have got all the big guys and we have them as well. So the only way you can pull ahead of the other guys is by basically running a better business. That means better strategies and it means having better people. 
How have you got better people? Who's responsible? Is it your brilliance as a leader or were you smart enough to find someone who could do it better than you and teach other people how to do it? I, obviously, I can't answer that kind of question. I mean, I've been able to get guys at the top of the company that are exceptionally good yeah. and they've been very well remunerated and treated well and given opportunities and look, you just do the best you can and hope you're going to get an outcome. Yeah. I don't yeah. like to put myself up as some kind of, you know, all seeing eye or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I did the best I could and it worked out okay. Yeah. Well, I, I can assure you, Jerry Harvey would have been a little bit more complimentary for his role and the success of his company than you were. But still, you're entitled to, you're entitled to be more modest than Jerry. Let's, let, let's focus. Can you just explain to us, what, what is the, the most important line of stuff you sell that, that explains why the results have been good? Well, it doesn't really come down to what we actually sell because um, the other guys sell it as well. And, yeah. you know, we're not a manufacturer, we're just a supplier. So our success is based around, I'd say, building a better relationship with our customers than the other guys do in the broad. Hmm. Do, do, do you sell Dell products and um, uh, Apple products or do you do the, the whole bit? It pretty much got all of everything, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, and, and the reason why I'm grilling you like this, Dave, is that people watch my show to work out whether they want to invest in a company like yours. And the, and the long-term view of the company looks fantastic. Uh, lately, you've come off the boil, um, but you've still got an impressive you know, um, track performance. What, what do you think is behind the recent sell-off? Is it because you're a tech company, you know, tech um, supplier in a sense that there's a bit of negativity or or is it because I think there's a recession coming what do you, you put it down to well we're not really a tech company hmm. but I wouldn't complain too much because we probably were propelled up in the last year or two by people thinking we're a tech company so you can't hmm. complain too much if they push you down um, thinking the same way I mean really we're just a a sophisticated logistics operation because you know we're not a manufacturer and um, you know so so what's the game plan going forward you know um, you know is there anything unusual that you're going to bring to the table that could explain a, a better um, you know profit sales performance and ultimately a better share price performance I think there's always opportunities there, but you have to wait for the opportunities. If you try to force opportunities, you usually end up with poor deals. So, you know, we're constantly searching for opportunities, but you've got to wait for them. And, you know, with the market conditions, the, the way they are now, maybe there'll be some, some other opportunities, but we're going to continue to do basically the same thing that we do do because, um, how many companies have got into trouble by diversifying into something that they didn't really understand or thought they understood, but turned out that they didn't and things like that. So we'll continue to do basically what we are doing and we'll just try to grow the size of the operation. Mm. Uh, are there any potential threats from overseas operators who might try and eat your lunch? 
Well, you know, they've been trying to drive us out of business in Australia for 20 plus years. Mm. With limited success. Well, with no success, obviously. I mean, on the commercial side, we're the number one, um, we're the number one distributor in Australia. And if you want to factor in that in profitability, we're far ahead of the other guys. I mean, that's, that's something they don't seem to care about too much, but obviously it's important to us. So, you know, we've been able to maintain our position and I don't really see any reason why we can't. I mean, look, our strategies are generated around local conditions and the competitors' strategies tend to be generated from their headquarters and then tried to be fitted into local conditions. And mm. that's a well-known path that's not great. Yeah, good, good point. How many people do you employ? We've got about 600 across Australia and New Zealand. Um, have you have you been a, a victim of the new age of uh, people wanting to work from home? Well, obviously, we, we, are, we already had a, a lot of work from home capability long before the COVID thing started because people want to be able to check their emails and do a lot of stuff, not necessarily in hours and all the other stuff that goes with it. So we're already uh, quite well set up in that regard and we just basically ramped it up. But it's an important part of the business, but it's only a smaller part. And I think conceptually, you should still run basically from the office. Yeah. But the reason why I'm asking the question is, a lot of your customers now have a big chunk of their staff wanting to work from home. Is that leading to potentially the requirement to buy more stuff, more equipment to, to cater to employees who want to work from home? Yeah, of course. Obviously, mm. that was one of the major benefits for us in this whole COVID thing. Um, people were rushing out to buy stuff to, to cater for it. Okay. And look, the market for computers is um, it's always growing because you know people like to get new machines and new stuff comes out and it's just constantly expanding and just getting bigger and bigger. So um, yeah, all just part of it, really. Yeah. And and what about the the threat of um, cyber insecurity, uh, you know, hacking and stuff like that? Is that giving a rise to, to demand for stuff that you guys sell? Well, we have a lot of that kind of software and it, and yeah, it does. I, I sometimes wonder if some of these things are a little bit over-exaggerated, but you know, people want to do what they want to do. Yeah. Well, well, the bottom line for lots of companies, and I guess given what happened to Optus, if they're seen to not taking enough steps for risk management, it can come back to bite them. So they may be well be over-investing in cyber security. Yeah, well, look, it's like insurance, you know. Um, generally speaking, it's a waste of money until something goes wrong. Hmm. Then it's one of those things to wish you had. Okay, so if, if I assume everything you've said to me is 100% accurate, which, of course, you're, you're attempting to do, um, the, the next logical question is, have you been inconvenienced by China's zero COVID policy in terms of getting supply? Well, you know, everyone's had a supply chain issue ever since this thing started, which I have to admit always baffled me a little bit as to what was really behind it and 
I've never really got a completely clear answer on it. The problem's not nearly as bad as it was and things are improving and it will improve and it'll probably overshoot like these things normally do. But in the overall scheme of things, it's not too bad. And look, one of the things about it in all these situations is that there's a competitiveness side to it and we tend to do better than our competitors. So from that standpoint, um, it doesn't come out too badly, although we've still got a massive backlog and we'd like to get that cleared for sure. Because yeah. one of the problems you've got is, you know, you get extensive systems with lots of components, networking, lots of servers, piles and piles of stuff, and you can't deliver that product until you've got all the bits, every single bit. So a few small bits can hold up a lot of equipment, yeah. and obviously that's not a good situation. Okay. I'm trying to look at some of the, some of the challenges that might be ahead. A lower dollar, how's that affect the, the bottom line for the company? Well, most of the vendors work in US dollars and obviously our competitors are working with the same vendors that we are. So from our point of view, the, 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 op, the effects are fairly minimal. At the end user level, it's a bit more painful because the price goes up, um, which is a pest, but there's really not much we can do about that. I mean. Currencies just move around all the time. Yeah, and and uh, what about how is the company done? Like, there's an expectation out there it could be a global recession. I'm not necessarily saying they are, but obviously, if we do go into a an economic slowdown, we know the Reserve Bank's raising interest rates. That, that obviously will have a bit of an impact on on the operation. Yeah, it's likely to, but. Look, we've never been tremendously affected by those things because, um, you know, there's there's sort of things that we can do in terms of, you know, getting new vendors, taking a, a bit away from other guys and other things, which have always allowed us to continue to continue to increase sales even through bad periods. Like, you know, with the GFC, you know, we still really didn't, we weren't greatly affected by that. And of course, We've been through periods way back in the 80s when the high inflation was on and all the other things and still managed to get through them all. As you get bigger, that gets a bit more difficult. But the market for, for computers itself is so strong that I think we'll still probably be okay. And, and I'm not 100% sure that we are going to go into any kind of really deep recession because it's different. Like... All the problems are basically being caused by government policy. They haven't been caused by market failure in any way. Mm. And generally, there's at least a bit of market failure in there. So it's going to it's harder to work out just exactly what the story is mm. um, in terms of how that's going to play out. And uh, I guess the, the the next significant question is: Is there anything out there on the horizon that you do worry about? Um, at, at, the, at this point in time? Um, <laughs> Doesn't look like no. it. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, obviously I'm going to be dead one day, but that doesn't worry me. Um, no, look, I, I think the US, look, our, our economy is always affected by the way things go in the US. And as I've said to plenty of people, I think we'll see it, we'll see a much clear indication of where the economic conditions are going to go after the US midterms, because if the Republicans make headway in the Senate and the House, I think, generally speaking, um, 
sentiment will turn up and the US economy will start to rebound pretty strongly. Mm. If that doesn't happen, then yeah, we could we could drift lower. But even then, I don't see it going a lot lower. And the US market is still very, very strong and their economy is still, you know, massively strong. So I don't really see it being too bad, to be honest. Well, one last one, mate. Um, were you a, um, a tech nerd as a young bloke? And that's why you, you like doing this sort of stuff? No, not at all. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I played football and cricket, like from sort of like 10 to 14. Right. Then when I was 14, I started racing small boats, you know, sailing boats. And I spent pretty near 10 years doing that. And that was the only thing important in my life. And then I got involved with computers more or less by accident when I was 24. And it just sort of took over. So no, I wasn't a, um, you know. <laughs> okay, mate, well, it's been great talking to you. Good luck with the uh, company going forward. You've done a great job in the past and uh, a very impressive performance. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Today we want to focus on, is it time to hedge your offshore investments? Well, Paul, this is an Australian dollar story, so tell us. It is an Australian dollar story, Peter, and let's look at the uh, what's happened so far in 2022. Aussie dollar down about 15%, as high as about 75 cents in April, down yep. to around 62, 63 cents. Pretty much a one-way train driven by largely because of the strength of the US dollar. Look, let's just put it in context. Uh, you know, over the last 15 years, it's been as high as a dollar ten and as low as about 50 cents. Mm. I guess you can see from there, Peter, every time it's got down really low, it's bounced very quickly. Yeah, a good good bounce. And uh, yeah, we know that sort of from RBA speak and, and a lot of work that other economists have done, between that sort of 70 to 75 cents yep. seems to be, be about historical the, average. About the average mm. and the sweet spot. So when it's down at uh, in the 62 cents, I think you've got to think pretty hard about whether uh, you know, you, it's, time, time it's time to hedge. Mm. Let's look at what's driving the dollar lower. I mean, really, the major factor, Peter, has been the stronger US dollar. And mm. every currency has weakened against the US dollar. So mm. we're not alone. Mm. But there are two other local factors that have probably come out more in the last couple of months or so. One is we have seen an easing in commodity prices. So iron ore is coming lower, mm. copper is coming lower. Even oil is lower. Even oil is lower. And it, we're seen as a commodity currency, mm. so that doesn't help. And then secondly, just in the last month or so, the Reserve Bank sort of, I guess, sort of changed its tack on interest rates a little bit. Mm. It only increased by a quarter percent rather than the half. Yeah. That gap between Australian interest rates and US interest rates has actually widened. Mm. And when those sort of interest rate differentials are widening, uh, currencies like the Australian dollar become less attractive. So yeah. um, that's probably the other factor. That's and and the irony is we've done pretty well against the, the pound and the yen, less so against the Asian currencies, but we are up against, and also the Kiwi dollar as well. So let's have a look at what could drive the A dollar higher. Well, really, I think the most likely thing is still going to be a stronger US dollar, Pete. Mm. Uh, we know that's at record levels. Uh, that rally in the US has, dollar has really been driven by expectations of higher interest rates and so far. The Federal Reserve has delivered in spades. Yeah. Uh, so people are expecting that have been right and we've seen the impact on that on every currency in the world. So really that rally needs to run out of steam. Yeah. And I think that'll be the biggest factor in turning the Aussie dollar so around. So a nice drop in US inflation will lead to the thoughts that well, interest rate rises are on the, on the way out in a sense and that's going to be 
good to bring the US dollar down and probably bring the A dollar up. Yeah, I think you're right. I think ex the market's saying inflation's peaked in the US, interest rates eventually will come down. Yeah. I think people will start to then look at the other currencies as yeah. being better value. For sure. Look, in the short term, uh, look, if the outlook for world economic growth improves, but yeah. everyone's talking about recession, recession yeah. you know, uh, and or improving commodity prices, but it's hard to see either of those two factors uh, in mm. the short term. But and Paul, and also markets in, in go look forward, don't they? So if they're thinking about recession, a part of the $8 sell-off today could be because they're fearing recession tomorrow. Yeah, I think you're right there, Peter. Right, so let's go and look at the, the way you play either hedged or unhedged. Yeah, so we position the Aussie dollar, and I think it's really important to understand that when you invest offshore, mm. you, you take on currency risk, particularly yeah. if you're unhedged. And when we say unhedged, it means you have no protection against a rising or falling dollar. Yeah. So let's look at the scenarios, both if you're hedged, or secondly, if you actually hedge and you take out, take out the currency risk. Let's start with the first one, Pete, and let's say you invest in the US share market or, or any offshore share mm. market. If the share price goes up yep. and, all, and the currency weakens, yep. you win-win. Yes. You win on both fronts. That's right. So you benefit from a rising share market, yep. but you also win because of the currency, because you invest in, say, US dollars, and because the Aussie dollar weakens or the A dollar is weakening, when you come to convert back, you can effectively buy more Australian dollars. dollars. Yeah, and I think the easy one is if you've got a dividend from a US company in US dollars, when you convert them to Aussie dollars, you get more and your overall return goes up, win-win as you pointed out. Now, if share price goes up and currency uh, uh, go, gets stronger, in other words, the A dollar goes up, you win on the share market, you lose, lose on, on the, the currency. currency. Yep. Let's look at the other way down. The share price goes down and also the currency weakens. Well, you know, that, that's sort of, I guess, what's been happening in the last six mm. months or so. Mm. So people are losing on the outright in terms of the, having exposure to the US share market, mm. but they're actually some of that loss is being tempered by gains in terms of the Aussie dollar has weakened. So mm. Mm. their losses are actually less than they would be uh, if, if they invested on a hedge basis. And then the worst case, I guess, is for overall is the share price down and the currency stronger mm. to lose-lose. Mm. On the other side, lose-lose. On the other side, if you hedge, yeah. otherwise you take out the currency risk. So the point of hedging is that there is no currency exposure. Mm. So you're purely exposed to the movement in the underlying asset and price. And so if a lot of people are thinking, okay, the US market's been smashed, over down 25% or so, eventually if it's going to rebound. Some people might be investing in the US market but they could lose out if the A dollar rises at the same time, couldn't they? That's right. So you might think the, that's right. So yeah. if you expect that to happen, I mean, and I think at some stage the Aussie dollar will rebound yep. because that's really what it's told us over history. Mm. Uh, we know what's driven yeah. driven the, the, the recent weakness. Uh, you're going to lose on the currency. Yeah. So I think it is time to, to think, think, about, to think hedging. about hedging. It doesn't yeah. mean it's going to turn around straight away. No. When, that's not what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, but I think that at 62, 63 cents, a hedge strategy makes a lot more sense than an unhedge strategy. Without a doubt. So how do you do it, Paul? How do people actually Well, look, hedge? it's not easy per se. You just can't go and say, I want to hedge. You've yeah. really got to buy um, a hedged fund, yeah. either an exchange-traded fund uh, or a managed uh, fund. Yeah. Uh, and many of the managers offer, offer both unhedged versions and hedge versions. Yeah. So here's some examples. Let's take away the three sort of big examples. The first one is the iShares S&P 500, very sort of core uh, way to play yeah. the US market. Cheapest chips. Uh, IVV mm. currently has an, a management fee of 0.04% per annum. <laughs> they also offer a currency hedge version, which mm. trades under the code of IHVV. 
it invests exactly the same way as IVV, but it takes out, it just hedges the currency mm. risk. It uh, has a slightly higher management fee of 0.10%. Not bad considering, Because it? it's actually investing yeah. some, some of the money to actually take out the hedge. Yeah. Uh, Vanguard's got a similar product. It's the MSCI Index International Shares ETF. That's investing right across the globe, not yeah. just the US market. Uh, VGS is the code. That's the unhedged, unhedged version, 0.18%. The hedged version, currency hedged version is VGAD, VGAD, 0.21%. Or if you want an active manager, uh, Magellan uh, offers both um, unhedged and hedged versions of its uh, flagship uh, global equities funds. Fees there are the same, pretty expensive, mm. but you, you pay for the so-called active management. So if you want to hedge, you really need to find the product that's doing it. Very hard to do it uh, individually as, yep. a, as, a, as, a, as a retail investor. You've got to buy a, a fund or an ETF where the manager is, is actually physically taking on the uh, the exposure to hedge out that currency yeah. risk. Yeah, it's a really important lesson, Paul. I know after the dot-com crash, I invested pretty heavily in um, the Triple Q index, which the, bought the NASDAQ, yep. and I did very, very well, but the $8 rose at the same time. And it was a very powerful lesson, which I've never forgotten. We're catching up now with Cameron Kusher of uh, PropTrack. He's an economist there. Great to see you, Cameron. Good to, good to be here, Peter. Mate, the, the subject of your recent press releases around the rental situation across the country, in a nutshell, what are you seeing? What we're seeing is very strong growth in rents, uh, even in markets like Sydney and Melbourne where rental growth wasn't previously strong. And as a result of that, it's the lower end of the market that's really struggling. So we've seen the percentage of properties listed for rent under $400 a week fall from 41.8% of all listings at the beginning of the pandemic back in March 2020 to as few as 19.3% uh, in the most recent months, which was September uh, 2022. And that's down September this year compared to September last year. Uh, we were looking at 33.8%. So there's been a significant reduction just over the last 12 months. What, what do you think explains it? Ultimately, there's a, there's a few factors here, but it comes down to the fact that there's not enough supply of rental stock and there's way too much demand, and that's offering landlords the ability to put up rents. And if we look at what's happened over the last eight years or so, uh, if we go back to 2014, APRA initially brought in... Um, speed limits to credit growth to investors. They then started to allow banks to charge higher interest rates to investors. Uh, we also had the in interest only credit cap um, introduced as well. And obviously a lot of investors use interest only loans. So mm -hmm. all of these factors combined reduce the level of investment in the market, but they also encourage some investors to sell up out of the market. We saw that particularly prevalent um, during the COVID period. So basically, we've thinned out supply to such a magnitude and now demand is picking up both back in capital cities from people returning from outside of capital cities, but also the return of overseas migration. And we know that most of those people settle in either Sydney or Melbourne. Okay, uh, you know, far better from me to be an optimist, uh, Cameron, um, about you know, the scary headlines about house price collapses in Australia, which 
lot of my colleagues in the media have great joy in printing those headlines, <laughs> despite the fact that they probably own houses that could suffer as a consequence of their headlines. But this rise in rents, is it going to help put a bit of a flaw under the fall in house prices? I think at some point it does. We're probably still a ways away from that, just because in the in the markets where housing affordability is most pressing, like Sydney and Melbourne, there actually hasn't been that much rental growth since the start of the pandemic. In in Melbourne, uh, so unit rents in Melbourne are also uh, currently slower than they were at the start of the pandemic. In Sydney, mm. rents are only up about 7%, whereas most other capital cities and regional markets, you're talking about 15 to 20% rental growth. But I think at some point it does. If renters are getting slugged with higher uh, rental rates every time they come up for a lease renewal, if property mm. prices are falling and eventually at some point interest rates will come down, um, but also state governments and federal governments are still offering incentives for first home buyers. So, you know, in, in New South Wales, for example, from early next year, you may not have to pay stamp duty up front. You might be able to pay land tax. And I think most first, first home buyers would choose that. Yep. Uh, you might also be able to grab, um, you know, some of the federal government assistance in the, in the form of shared equity or, or low LVR um, borrowing to enter into the market. So I think we will start to see first home buyers think more and more about those opportunities. And obviously if we get more first home buyers into the market, that will likely support prices. And I presume also if uh, potential investors hear that rents are on the rise, it makes them probably more inclined to turn up to an auction, hoping to pick up a bargain, which they then turn into a rental property. And a lot of people do it for tax deductible reasons as well. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest um, handbrake on investors at the moment is just how quickly interest rates have risen. And obviously for their own principal place of residence, servicing that mortgage has become a lot more expensive. And there's still quite a significant hurdle in terms of the serviceability buffer there. So, you know, you're being assessed on your ability to repay a mortgage 3% higher than the interest rate you're offered. So if you've already got a mortgage and you're trying to take out another mortgage, that is reducing your borrowing capacity quite significantly. And I think that's that's the biggest reason why we're not seeing more investors in the market right now. Yeah, Cameron, in the US, there's this um, association that when house prices fall, rents fall. Uh, and, and I know some economists are saying that, you know, it'll eventually start showing up in the US CPI. Please God that, that it actually does. <laughs> but, but in our case, America, in the American case, They've got a much bigger supply of properties coming on the market. We have a supply problem here as well, don't we? Which I presume will be another flaw. And, and by the way, I, I believe house prices are going to fall 10 or 15%. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. But there's a 25s and 30s out there that A, historically seems uh, unusual for Australia, and B, I think it's probably scaring too many people. But is that a, a pretty fair argument that our lack of supply probably also puts a bit of a flaw on how far house prices fall. Definitely. I mean, we are seeing quite a lot of construction at the moment. Uh, I think mm. what's really different about the construction phase we're in at the moment compared to previous ones, particularly from the rental markets perspective, is this has largely been driven by owner-occupiers purchasing new properties, whereas mm. historically, particularly inner-city apartment projects, they've been driven by investors. But developers have paid such a high price for these, these uh, locations that they're developing they basically have to build owner-occupier stock. 
Um, but I, I agree. I think that the ongoing shortage of housing is going to put a floor under prices. And and I'm with you. Our expectation is from their peak, property prices probably fall around uh, around 15%. Um, but even if they were to fall 15%, they'd still be higher than they were at the start of the pandemic. And I think that mm. that uh, that reality check is is really important for people. 15% is a big number historically. Um, but, you know, start of the pandemic, no one was saying property prices in Australia were, were really affordable. So I can recall when I interviewed you during the, the pandemic, one of the things that was a big standout was a lot of rental properties in inner Sydney, inner uh, Melbourne, were really losing value. They were losing tenants. Uh, landlords weren't getting their rent paid. And so we kind of thought there would be an oversupply, and I guess there was. Is that being, are people now having a look at those sorts of properties, either to buy them or to re-rent them? Definitely. What we've seen probably over the last six to nine months is a lot of people that left Sydney and Melbourne are now coming back. And obviously we've also got overseas borders reopened. And a lot of people that move to Australia don't have a home that they own. So they end up renting and they tend to uh, rent in inner city areas. So we have seen in Sydney and Melbourne particularly a massive reduction in the number of properties available for rent in those inner city areas. And even in terms of properties for sale, we have seen a big fall in the number of properties in those inner city areas, particularly apartments uh, available for sale. So those, those properties are becoming a lot more viable. The other big thing is that the cost of a unit compared to a house, we've never, we didn't see through the pandemic unit prices rise anywhere near as significantly as houses. And now that interest rates are rising, people's borrowing capacities are reducing, but also we're living with the pandemic. We're not as scared of being close to people as we were previously. Yeah. Uh, our strong belief is that the unit market is going to hold up better in this downturn uh, because of those factors than the detached housing market. Yeah, it's a very good, very good point. And that means that a, a lot of people who may well have been hoping on buying a, a home uh, could, could start looking at the, the attraction of apartments. Definitely. Uh, and I think that's something we're going to see more and more. And I think New South Wales in particular is going to be a really good test case for that, uh, mm -hmm. assuming that these laws get passed and, and we give first home buyers the option to pay uh, land tax rather than stamp duty. Mm, great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Cameron. Thanks, Peter. That's Cameron Kusher of PropTrack. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget, if you want more analysis on stocks you might want to invest in, uh, have a look at switzerreport.com.au. And don't forget, we're back on Monday. I hope I see you then.